Hi, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. We have 10 little-known stories from the Civil War, all of them interesting nuggets, and one which is worthy of a dramatized series, all for you today. And if you're curious, you'll find those stories outlined in the show notes. It's a beautiful fall day here in Southeast Virginia, and I've been re-watching the 2001 American war drama Band of Brothers, this time on Netflix, and finding it to be, as I did the first time, mostly historically true, well worth watching, and produced in a way that accurately shows the sacrifice of our country's servicemen in the European theater, and later the Pacific theater, of World War II in the early to mid-1940s. I had no idea until I found this story that the nickname and Screamin' Eagle shoulder patch for the 101st had ties to the Civil War. And here's the story. The Band of Brothers series dramatizes the history of Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division, that being known by the nickname the Screamin' Eagles, from jump training in the United States through its participation in major actions in Europe, up until Japan's capitulation and the end of World War II. The patch is still in use today, and the 101st is still called upon to be used as the tip of the spear when our army is called upon. The division patch, which their actions have made the stuff of legend, shows the left profile of an eagle with its beak open. Some versions show a yellow tongue to better emphasize the idea that the eagle is screaming, and arched above the eagle profile is the word airborne. The history of the screaming eagle goes back to the American Civil War, and it's that history of the eagle that comprises the first of our ten stories today. The story of the Screaming Eagle begins in the early spring of 1861 in Chippewa County, Wisconsin, when an Ojibwe Indian chief named Skye rescued two young eaglets from their dead mother's nest and took them to the town of Jim Falls. There he traded one of the eaglets to a Mrs. Margaret McCann for a bushel of corn. This was 1861, and the American Civil War was raging. Margaret McCann's husband, Daniel, had a game leg from a childhood accident and wanted to contribute to the war effort in some way. Upon hearing of the formation of a militia in the Chippewa Falls area, he decided to offer the young eagle as a mascot to the company. The Chippewa Falls men refused the offer, but a company from Eau Claire agreed to purchase the eagle for their mascot. One of the men from the Eau Claire company, named James McGuire, approached the unit's captain, John E. Perkins, and asked permission to obtain the eagle for a mascot, and Perkins granted permission. The men passed the hat and gathered the $2.50 required. Later, a businessman named Mills Jeffries covered the expense and asked that the men be refunded. The militia had been named the Eau Claire Badgers, but they took pride in their winged pal and soon changed their name to the Eau Claire Eagles. The eagle needed a name, so they named him Old Abe, after President Abe Lincoln. With the eagle on a tether attached to a shield, the regiment marched to Madison to train at Fort Randolph. Upon their approach to Fort Randolph, the band's impromptu performance of Yankee Doodle excited Old Abe. He grabbed a corner of one of the flags that were carried on each side of him in his beak and held it while flapping his wings. The local newspapers picked it up and portrayed the story as a good omen, lifting Old Abe into public consciousness. Old Abe was officially designated as the official mascot of the 8th Wisconsin. 
and he was kept by Company C and first handled by a soldier named David McLean. You may also have noticed, thanks to the names of the principals in this story, that Wisconsin was settled by lots of Irish, from Mrs. McCann to James McGuire to David McLean. And one of these days I'm going to share some stories from the Irish Regiment of the Civil War. But that's another story for another time. The 8th Wisconsin went on to fight 35 Civil War battles, and a number of stories about Old Abe have survived. At Fort Randolph, the Eau Claire men were mustered into federal service as Company C of the 8th Wisconsin Volunteer Regiment and went through basic training before being sent to Mississippi. On the way, while passing through St. Louis, Missouri, Old Abe was subjected to taunts of wild goose and Yankee crow by Southern sympathizers. He became flustered and broke the tether that secured him to his post. Several men in C Company broke ranks to recapture him and secure him to his shield perch. During this effort, one person offered $500 for that eagle, and another offered their valuable farm for him. Between battles, old Abe was set free to roam the camp, and did so, playfully tipping over fire pails full of water, chasing large insects through the camp, learning how to play with soldiers as they rolled bullets along the ground, ambushing fresh uniforms hung out to dry, and raiding the food provisions. Twice he got a little tipsy raiding mugs of spirits which were left unattended. The first major action the 8th Wisconsin faced took place in Farmington, Mississippi, in May of 1862. During that battle, Captain Perkins ordered young James McGinnis, who carried old Abe then, to the rear for protection. Later at the Battle of Corinth, a mini-ball severed old Abe's tether, which set him loose on the battlefield. Old Abe flew down the Federal lines with his bearer, who was then David McLean again, chasing after him. Many Confederate soldiers attempted to shoot him down. Confederate General Sterling Price offered a bounty to his men for the capture or killing of that eagle, stating that that damned eagle is worth more to Union morale than a whole brigade of a dozen battle flags. Later at Vicksburg, old Abe was hit by a mini-ball that traveled down his neck and chest, removing feathers, but not seriously wounding him. With care, he recovered, but they clipped his wings after that incident to protect him from future disaster. After the war, old Abe stayed busy attending veterans' reunions and events around the country. Back in Wisconsin, old Abe had special quarters in the basement of the Wisconsin State Capitol, but a fire started in the room next to him, and he died from smoke inhalation. He was stuffed and placed on a perch in the State Assembly Room until another fire destroyed his body in 1904. In 1921, a reserve division was formed in Wisconsin, and it was called the 101st Organized Reserves in Milwaukee. Someone designed a shoulder patch with old Abe on his old shield, and the War Department approved it, and that was the birth of the Scream and Eagle patch of the 101st. The Airborne tab was added in 1942, when the 101st Reserves were replaced by the 101st Airborne. Since then, the Scream and Eagles have served in every American conflict, with old Abe the Eagle on every shoulder. Our next story... The Lost Treasure of the Grey Ghost is really part legend, and there are many legends that swirled around the colorful actions of Confederate General John Singleton Mosby, nicknamed the Grey Ghost by the Union soldiers who pursued him but could never catch him. Mosby's cavalry raids and constant harassment of Union forces were daring and almost always successful, 
and tales of his exploits were still being told decades after the Civil War ended. One such tale which has persisted is that of his capture of Union General Edwin H. Stoughton and the seizing of his estate, which contains an estimated $350,000 in coins and valuables, all of which were lost. The legend begins this way. John Mosby graduated from the University of Virginia in 1852 and became a busy and successful lawyer in Bristol, Virginia. When the war between the states broke out, he enlisted in the Southern Army as a private. For a time, he served as a cavalry scout under Colonel Jeb Stewart during the Peninsula Campaign and received a promotion to colonel after being recognized for valor at the Battle of Bull Run. In 1863, he organized and commanded an elite cavalry unit which was named Mosby's Partisan Raiders, and with this well-trained band of hand-picked men, he led a series of relentless raids against the Yankees throughout Maryland and Virginia, cutting telegraph lines, destroying Union supply trains, and capturing outposts, weapons, and prisoners. That same year, he and his men attacked the Fairfax County Courthouse in Fairfax, Virginia. Here they surprised and captured Union General Edwin H. Stoughton. Stoughton was never respected as much of a leader. He had a great appetite and was considered overweight and overbearing by many, caring much for fine wines, food, and women. Some said he lacked enthusiasm for combat. Others just ditched the formalities and called him a coward. When Mosby and his men entered the courthouse, they were surprised to find Stoughton had taken it over as his private residence for the duration of the war. And what a residence! There were great stores of food, lavish furnishings, great casks of wine, a veritable rich man's retreat, which looked all the more ridiculous as this man was a general and the war had been going on around him for two years. But here he lived, protected by two Union captains and 38 enlisted men. The general was captured easily, his men were made prisoners, and Mosby's raiders collected 58 horses, a number of carriages and wagons, dozens of wooden crates containing victuals, and a fortune in gold and silver plate jewelry and expensive tableware that the general had stolen from southern homes and businesses during the previous months. Mosby estimated the total value of Stoughton's stolen possessions at about $350,000, which would be valued around $5 million today. Mosby ordered that the cash and jewels be placed in canvas sacks. A few days later, Mosby was alerted by scouts of the approach of a large contingent of Union soldiers bearing down on them quickly. He then commanded his men to load up the carriages with the crates of food and casks of wine and the valuables and cash, and taking Stoughton and his men as hostages, they headed for the town of Culpeper, over 50 miles away to the southwest. He sent a scout ahead, and there in Culpeper he knew Jeb Stewart would be informed and awaiting his arrival. As they crossed into neighboring Fauquier County, much of which still remains farmland today, scouts brought him word that a company of Union cavalry was bearing down on them from the northeast. Mosby ordered that the casks of wine and the food be abandoned. Then he decided to bury the sacks of cash and valuables. As Mosby recalled it years later, the raiders paused briefly about midway between Haymarket and New Baltimore to unload the excess cargo. Some of the soldiers hurriedly threw the casks to the ground, while Mosby and his aide, Sergeant James F. Ames, toted the treasure-filled sacks several yards up the trail, quickly excavated a shallow pit, deposited the booty within, then covered it over to make it look like nothing had been freshly dug there. 
"'As Sergeant Ames filled in the hole, "'Mosby made slashes in some nearby trees to mark the spot, "'with the hope that he could visit the site in a few weeks "'and move it to a safer location. "'But his responsibilities kept calling him further and further away. "'He survived the war, never having been captured, "'and returned to law in Warrington in 1872. "'He served as the U.S. Consul to Hong Kong from 1904 to 1910.' and served as an assistant attorney for the Department of Justice. He wrote two books, but never mentioned the buried treasure except in his personal diaries. His sergeant, Ames, was captured by General Custer and hanged at Fort Royal as a spy. When Mosby was 83, he was asked why he never returned to the site of the treasure, and his answer was, he always meant to return to the area and look for the catch that he buried after capturing Staunton. Some of the most precious heirlooms of old Virginia are buried there, he said. I guess that one of these days someone will find it. Over the years, many treasure hunters have tried just that, but to date, the treasure of the Gray Ghost has never been found. We'll return to ten little-known stories from the Civil War right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Here's a story you very likely never heard before. It's about wounds that glowed in the dark. In the aftermath of the Battle of Shiloh in 1862, soldiers began to report a strange phenomenon, glow-in-the-dark wounds. More than 16,000 soldiers from both armies were wounded during that battle, and neither Union nor Confederate medical personnel were prepared for the carnage. Wounded soldiers laid in the mud for two days, in the midst of a rainstorm, and it was cold. That kind of carnage is typical of most of the Civil War, a war that I rarely cover here due to the terrible sadness of knowing that Americans fought Americans here. Many of those wounded at Shiloh noticed that their wounds glowed in the dark. In fact, the injured whose wounds glowed seemed to heal better than the others. In 2001, two Maryland teenagers, to be named below, solved the mystery, and won a top prize at an international science fair. The answer they discovered, the wounded became hypothermic, meaning when your body temperature drops to an unsafe temperature, and their lowered body temperatures made ideal conditions for a bioluminescent bacteria called photohabdis luminescence, which also stops dangerous bacteria from breeding and multiplying. They were saved by something soldiers later termed the angel's glow. Medical Discovery News writes, In 2001, a high school student named Bill Martin became interested in the Angel's Glow after touring the Battle of Shiloh site. As part of a high school science project, Bill and his friend Jonathan Curtis decided to figure out what caused the Angel's Glow with the help of Bill's mother Phyllis, a microbiologist. They began by identifying bacteria that were bioluminescent, which means that they glow in the dark. They then examined historical records to determine which ones could have been present at Shiloh. One candidate was the bacterium known as Photohabdis luminescens, which lives inside microscopic worms called nematodes. A handful of soil contains thousands of these microscopic worms, many of which are parasites of plants, insects, or animals. Photohabdis luminescens has a symbiotic relationship with a soil nematode called Heterohabditae which infects insects. In this case, the light emitted by the bacteria may attract insects for the nematodes to infect. Under the right conditions, the bacteria actually glow. 
That's where P. Luminescence comes into the Angel's Glow story. Wounded soldiers in the muddy field on a cool April night would have had a lower body temperature than normal, making them a better host for that kind of bacteria. The bacteria in the soil, contaminated by the soldiers' open wounds, released toxins to kill other microbes and used some of the wounded flesh for nutrients. This bacterial infection would have caused the angel's glow while helping to heal the wound and preventing infections by other bacteria. We'll never know for sure that P. luminescence was the cause of angel's glow, but it is the best explanation we have. Our next story, a very short note. Seven future U.S. presidents served in the Civil War. Their names? Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, William McKinley, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, Chester A. Arthur, and Andrew Johnson. Of the hundreds and hundreds of regiments raised in the North and sent to war, only one included two future presidents, Rutherford Hayes and William McKinley. Hayes began his Civil War career as an officer in the 23rd Ohio. He attained the rank of general and spent much of the war career in western Virginia, where he was wounded four times. William McKinley served under Hayes in the 23rd. The older Ohioan recognized McKinley's courage and leadership abilities and promoted him to supply sergeant for actions while the regiment fought in western Virginia, later to become West Virginia, and to second lieutenant for bravery under fire at Antietam. McKinley greatly admired his fellow Ohioan, and he followed the older man into the Ohio governor's mansion and the presidency. The next story is called General Butler's Chamber Pot or General Order Number 28. And the moral of this story is to make sure you never insult any group of women because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. General Order Number 28 was a military decree made by Major General Benjamin Butler during the American Civil War. Following the Battle of New Orleans, Butler established himself as military commander of that city on May 1, 1862. Many of the city's inhabitants were strongly hostile to the federal government, and many women in particular expressed this contempt by insulting Union troops. One method of insulting those troops was to dump their chamber pots, the slang word for them being piss pots, over the heads of Union troops. Accordingly, on May 15th, Butler issued an order to the effect that any woman insulting or showing contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States should be treated as a woman of the town plying her avocation, in other words, the solicitation of prostitution. The order had no sexual connotation, but it permitted soldiers not to treat women performing such acts as ladies. For example, if a woman punched a soldier, he could punch her back. Known as the woman's order, it was very controversial, both at home and abroad, as women throughout New Orleans interpreted this butler legalizing rape. The general dislike over number 28 even went so far as people printing his portrait on the bottom of chamber pots and was eventually the cause of Butler's removal from command of New Orleans on December 16, 1862. Here was the text of order number 28. New Orleans, May 15, 1862. As the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women, calling themselves ladies, of New Orleans, in return for the most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter, when any female shall by word, 
gesture, or movement, insult, or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States. She shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town, plying her avocation. By command of Major General Butler. The Women's Story With many men away from home fighting for the Confederacy, women sacrificed physical conveniences and comforts for what was considered a holy cause by becoming the front lines of war morale. They inspired troops and kept up morale by retaining an unofficial faith in the soldiers and a mystical faith in Providence, which they expressed through letters to soldiers and personal diaries. To add to their burden, women had to figure out how to support themselves without men to provide for them. Many women leaped from their spheres to assume duties and roles that were almost always performed by men. They became managers of farms or plantations, or sought employment outside of their home in order to provide for themselves and their families. The plight was observed by not only personal correspondence and diaries, but also demonstrations known as bread riots. The Richmond Bread Riot occurred on April 2, 1863. Women were distressed due to the food shortages, the failure of relief efforts, and the general struggle of independence in a world based on paternalism and benevolence. The women of Richmond raided stores on Cary Street and Main Street, and interrupted only by Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who allowed them to keep the goods they stole from the stores. By the end of the war, Confederate women had made sacrifices that were compared to the stern resolution and self-abrogation of Rome and Lacedaemon. They willingly deprived themselves of things such as food and clothing to help the suffering troops. To many white Confederate women, the Confederacy was their Athens, for which they would sacrifice all. The women of New Orleans did not take Butler's appointment as a military general very well. His troops faced all manner of verbal and physically symbolic insults from women, including obvious physical avoidance, such as crossing the street or leaving a streetcar to avoid a Union soldier, being spat upon, and having chamber pots being dumped upon them. The British House of Lords called Order No. 28 a most heinous proclamation and regarded it as one of the grossest, most brutal, and most unmanly insults to every woman in New Orleans. The Saturday Review criticized Butler's rule, accusing him of gratifying his own revenge and likening him to an uncivilized dictator. They wrote, It required not only the nature of a savage, but of a very mean and pitiful kind of savage, to be induced by indignation at a woman's smile, to inflict an imprisonment so degrading in its character as that which seems to constitute his favorite punishment, and accompanied by privations so cruel. It's only a pity that so unadulterated a barbarian should have got hold of an Anglo-Saxon name. Butler tried to defend his command in New Orleans in a letter to the Boston Journal, claiming, The devil had entered the hearts of the women of New Orleans to stir up strife and falsely claimed that the order had been very effective. In essence, he said his order stated the effective way to deal with a defiant Confederate sympathizing woman was to treat her as undignified as a woman of the town, and thus to ignore her. Who was right and who was wrong, we'll leave up to you listeners. Our next story, the First Medal of Honor. From the Coolidge National Medal of Honor Heritage Center, Chattanooga, Tennessee has long been considered the birthplace of the National Medal of Honor, and here's why. On April 12, 1862, 24 volunteers from the Union Army, led by civilian scout James Andrews, 
commandeered a Confederate locomotive named the General, outside of Big Shanty, Georgia, now Kennesaw, and took it northward toward Chattanooga, Tennessee, doing as much damage as possible to the vital Western and Atlantic Railroad line as they went. Out of fuel, Andrews and his men abandoned the locomotive and scattered into the woods before being captured by Confederate troops. All were put on trial and convicted for acts of unlawful belligerency or being unlawful combatants and spies. Shortly thereafter, Andrews and seven of the raiders were executed by hanging with the remaining held as prisoners of war. For their acts of valor, for what later became called the Great Locomotive Chase, six members of Andrews' raiders were awarded the first medals of honor in our country's history on March 25, 1863. Ultimately, 19 of the 24 members of Andrews' raiders would receive the Medal of Honor for their incredible acts of valor on that day. Every March 25th, our country observes National Medal of Honor Day, a solemn annual recognition of more than 3,500 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, among a few others, whose service to our nation has been distinguished through extraordinary heroism and sacrifice. It was on this date in 1863 that the first Medal of Honor, our nation's highest military award, was presented to Private Jacob Parrott for his part in the great locomotive chase that ended just outside of Chattanooga. Ultimately, 19 of the 24 members of Andrews Raiders were awarded the Medal of Honor for their incredible acts of valor on April 12, 1862. In that same year, the Chattanooga area would become hollowed ground where 33 additional Medals of Honor were awarded. From the blood-soaked fields of Chickamauga to Missionary Ridge to the stirring sight of the Battle Above the Clouds on Lookout Mountain, these acts of valor, also known as the First Medals, created an important heritage that's been entrusted to Chattanooga to preserve as the birthplace of the Medal of Honor. And one further note, we'll be bringing the story of the Great Locomotive Chase to 1001 Stories for the Road as soon as our current story, The Moonstone, by Wilkie Collins, ends. Also, make a note, I did a podcast here at 1001 Heroes called Was My Brother in the Battle, which is the title of an old Stephen Foster song, a story which shared the letters of my great-uncle to his sister through some of the bloodiest battles of the war until his death at Petersburg. I highly recommend that episode, Was My Brother in the Battle, if you haven't heard it. How many of you know that the Civil War, by total coincidence, began and ended 300 miles apart in the same man's houses? His name was Wilmer McLean. On July 18, 1861, Confederate General Beauregard had sat down for supper in the home of a Manassas local when a cannonball pierced through the house and landed in the kitchen fireplace. It was something of a surprise, but not so overwhelming as to ruin Beauregard's sense of humor. He wrote, A comical effect of this artillery fight was the destruction of the dinner of myself and staff by a federal shell that fell into the fireplace of my headquarters at the McLean house. Perhaps the shell would have been more of a shock had it not been just one of many volleys in the first major campaign of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run. The house belonged to a man named Wilmer McLean, who had purchased the property in 1854. Beauregard had commandeered the property, and McLean's well-situated house and barn, as his headquarters, and later as a hospital for Confederate troops. McLean was happy to oblige the general, as he himself was a retired officer in the Virginia militia 
and had profited nicely off renting the property and speculating on commodities like sugar. But by the time the second battle of Bull Run had occurred on his doorstep and upset his then-pregnant wife, McLean had had enough. The profits no longer outweighed the dangers, and he decided to move south. H. Parkins, in Civil War Myth of History, writes, In 1863, William McLean settled on the property surrounding the Two Rain Tavern at a small and quiet crossroads over a hundred miles south of the chaos of Civil War battlefields. For two years, his family lived in the relative quietude of southern Virginia until, on April 9, 1865, Charles Marshall, General Robert E. Lee's aide, approached him. Marshall asked McLean to show him a place that was suitable for Lee and another general to meet. McLean first showed him a dilapidated home, but when Marshall rejected it, McLean reluctantly offered up his own residence for the meeting, and Marshall accepted. General Lee arrived at McLean's Appomattox Courthouse property at about one o'clock in the afternoon in a crisp uniform. Shortly after, wearing his muddied field uniform, the other general arrived. It was Ulysses S. Grant. For about 25 minutes, the two spoke in McLean's parlor, until eventually Lee brought up the purpose of their meeting, the surrender of the Confederate Army. Minutes later, the Civil War officially ended. Such it is that the Civil War started in Wilmer McLean's kitchen and ended in his parlor. I can also add that I visited the national park known as Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, and it was one of the most informative historical parks I've ever visited. We were assigned a character guide who represented one of the men who were actually there at the time, and he shared his family's story, his Civil War history, and what brought him there that day when the surrender was signed. I highly recommend that stop if you're anywhere near Central Virginia. Our next story? I wonder how many of you know the names of America's first female detectives. I'll give you a hint. They were hired by the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to investigate Southern secessionists who were planning on sabotaging railroad tracks and bridges in Maryland just prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. Although Maryland fell on the Union side when the war broke out, allegiances were highly Southern in that state. For instance, Lincoln had only received 2,300 Republican votes statewide, and Baltimore was considered a hotbed of insurrection. Those detectives' names were Kate Warren and Hattie Lawton, and they had been hired by a very forward-thinking Alan Pinkerton, founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency in Chicago, who felt that female detectives would be less likely to be suspected in that role. And he was right. They were assigned to the team of Pinkerton detectives working in the Baltimore area to uncover a gang of rebel insurrectionists, and they ended up helping to uncover an assassination plot to kill Lincoln while he was traveling through Baltimore on his way to his inauguration. Here's the story. On November 6, 1860, Lincoln was elected as the 16th President of the United States, a Republican, and the first to be elected from that party. Shortly after his election, many representatives from the South made it clear that the Confederacy's secession from the U.S. was inevitable, which greatly increased tension across the nation. Alan Pinkerton was commissioned by the railroad's president, Samuel M. Felton, to provide security for the president-elect on his journey to Washington, D.C. Baltimore citizens had attacked a Union Army regiment from Massachusetts as it marched through the city on its way to Washington. When Virginia seceded and joined the Confederacy, 
it became necessary for Lincoln to cross Maryland to reach Washington, and Maryland was not safe territory. Some of the Pinkertons infiltrated secessionist gangs in Baltimore at the risk of their lives, and one agent learned of a plot which had been instigated by Baltimore's chief of police. It was a plot to assassinate President Lincoln on his way to the inauguration, and this is what was involved. Lincoln was scheduled to make a whistle-stop train tour to 70 towns and cities beginning in Harrisburg, PA, and ending in Washington, D.C. In Baltimore, he would need to change trains. One plan was to create a diversionary fight in the station where Lincoln was to step off the Harrisburg train. The Baltimore police chief would station only eight cops at the depot, and they would run toward the melee. At that moment, a team of assassins would close in and kill the president. Pinkerton reported the plot to Lincoln, but Lincoln would not change his route or plan until Pinkerton had hard evidence. Another plan relied upon Lincoln's being able to secure a carriage to take him from the Calvert Street station in Baltimore to the Camden station of the Baltimore and Ohio Railway. The carriage would then be attacked by assassins. It was Pinkerton agents Kate Warren and Hattie Lawton, as well as a group of other detectives, who will name going forward who discovered several possible plots in Baltimore. This included investigation of Corsican hairdresser Cipriano Ferrandini, a well-established barber at Baltimore's Barnum's Hotel, and president of the pro-Confederate National Volunteers. One of Pinkerton's operatives attended a meeting in which Ferrandini made a fiery speech condemning Lincoln, and after interviewing Ferrandini, they learned of several reported plans to assassinate Lincoln. He had traveled to Mexico in 1860 to train with the secessionist militia and met Jerome N. Bonaparte and Thomas Winans, who were individuals in the high society of Baltimore who had Confederate sympathies. Later, Pinkerton's operatives investigated Otis K. Hillard, a member of the Palmetto Guards, a secret military organization in Baltimore. After interviewing him, they learned of several possible plots to kill Lincoln, including one where Lincoln would be surrounded by a vast crowd at the Camden Street Depot. Another Pinkerton operative, Timothy Webster, and his Pinkerton agent wife for this assignment, Hattie Lawton, learned about a secret league from Baltimore which had planned on destroying railroad bridges, destroying telegraph wires, and killing Lincoln. Other individuals, such as William Seward and New York City Police Detective David S. Bookstaver, drew similar conclusions to Pinkerton's, while the Congressional Select Committee was also investigating the threat by Ferrandini. That select committee turned to the New York City police, the thinking being that New York City had been dealing with insurrectionist gangs for years. In January of 1861, as the days were growing shorter on the road to uncovering and proving any plots against the president, John Kennedy, the superintendent of the New York police, and George Walling, his chief of detectives, gave their support to the effort to prove that a plot or plots existed. They returned to New York and called up their two best detectives, W.T. DeVoe and Thomas Sampson. The two had Southern backgrounds and would pose as Southern gentlemen at some insurrectionist meetings. They even joined a paramilitary outfit called the Southern Volunteers, commanded by a flamboyant Texan called Captain Hay. DeVoe's cover was nearly blown when he received a letter from his wife addressed to his phony name, and one of the volunteers happened to see it. He was questioned, suspicion was raised, and the two took the first train out of Baltimore, heading southward to Washington, D.C. They checked into Willard's Hotel under the names 
Anderson and Davis. Later that day, they were coming through the lobby when they spotted some Southern volunteers checking the hotel register. They tried to elude their pursuers by mingling with the crowd in the hotel, where they were approached by Pinkerton agent Tim Webster, who was working undercover as part of the assassin's team assigned to hunt them down. Webster recognized and approached DeVoe and said, We need to get you out of here, fast. He got them out and put them on a northbound train. DeVoe and Sampson soon found themselves surrounded again, on the train, by secessionists, and ended up jumping off the train to save their skins. They ended up taking the long trip back to New York City. Meanwhile, Pinkerton agents had amassed enough evidence to be able to convince Lincoln that he needed to change his travel plans if he wanted to survive to be inaugurated. He arrived in Harrisburg, PA, on February 22, 1861, and addressed the state legislature, and at 5 p.m. joined Pennsylvania Governor Curtin for dinner, at which time he confided to the Pennsylvania governor that there was a plot against his life. His schedule was now changed, and he needed to leave now for D.C. At 6 p.m., feigning illness, Lincoln left the reception and was secretly driven to a railroad siding outside of Harrisburg, where he boarded a regularly scheduled train to Philadelphia. Pinkerton's men cut the telegraph wires to prevent the rebels from spreading the word of Lincoln's change of plans just in case they had found out about the changes. Agent Kate Warren boarded the train with Lincoln, and throughout that trip, Kate, armed, sat next to Lincoln, disguised as Lincoln's invalid brother, while directing security, arranging the rail cars, and coordinating transportation to Philadelphia. On February 21st, when Lincoln and his party arrived in Philadelphia, they were warned of threats to the president's life, and he reportedly appreciated their suggestions, but was not fearful or agitated. Frederick W. Seward, the son of William Seward, later one of the targets of the Lincoln assassination, would provide similar warning. Two days later, on February 23rd, Lincoln, Pinkerton, Cade Warren, and the rest of Lincoln's party traveled through Baltimore without anyone recognizing them, and made it to Washington, D.C., and then to the Willard Hotel. While Pinkerton's plan was successful, the mayor of Baltimore, George William Brown, criticized it as the shunning of the city, and reportedly a hostile feeling toward the city resulted from the plan's revelation. The large crowd which gathered at the station to see Lincoln were disappointed. Of course, Brown didn't know or didn't reveal the fact that a number of assassins were waiting in that crowd. If you're hoping to find the story told in film or novel, I have a few suggestions for you. In 1951, Metro-Golden-Meyer, MGM, released a fictional recreation of the alleged plot against Lincoln entitled The Tall Target. Its story generally follows what is known about the Baltimore plot, with some differences. In their movie, it was a New York Police Department detective named John Kennedy, played by Dick Powell, who contacts the administration about the conspiracy and boards the train hoping to discover whether any of the plotters are on board before they reach Baltimore. That wasn't the case in real life. There actually was an NYPD officer, John Alexander Kennedy, who claimed to have been the one to uncover the Baltimore plot. But unlike Powell's movie character, he was not actually on the scene. Moreover, Kennedy was in reality the superintendent of the entire New York force. In the film, he's simply a detective sergeant. The popular YouTube series, Puppet History, has an episode which describes a simplified version of the Baltimore plot. The episode, entitled How America's First Female Detective Saved Abe Lincoln, 
mainly focuses on Kate Warren and how she aided in saving the life of the president-elect. There is also a graphic novel focusing on Kate Warren and the Pinkerton's role by Jeff Jensen entitled Better Angels, A Kate Warren Adventure. A footnote or two. Hattie Lewis Lawton continued to work with the Pinkerton Agency throughout the Civil War. It was said that both she and Kate Warren learned more about the Baltimore assassination plan than did their male counterparts. According to Pinkerton's account, in the early part of 1861, Lawton was stationed in Perryville, Maryland, with Timothy Webster. She had been recruited to the agency, along with Elizabeth Baker, by Kate Wern, who headed the Pinkerton Agency's Female Detective Bureau, based in Chicago. After Pinkerton began his secret service for General George McClellan, Lawton and Webster were added to the payroll of the Pinkerton Service in Washington on August 8, 1861. Lawton, again posing as Timothy Webster's wife, appeared in Richmond, Virginia in the early part of 1862, having been sent to Richmond to determine Confederate Army movements. But Timothy Webster fell ill while staying at the Monument Hotel in Richmond, which prevented intel reports from being sent back to Pinkerton. During Webster's illness, John Scoble, an African-American Union spy, worked with Hattie Lawton, posing as her servant. Pinkerton would later describe her as a 25-year-old beauty. Pinkerton, having not heard from Webster for some time, sent two agents, Price Lewis and John Scully, to Richmond to see what had happened to Webster and Lawton, but they were recognized and arrested. Later, they were released as part of a prisoner exchange in March of 1863. One or both of the men, probably in order to save their own life, revealed the identity of Timothy Webster and both Webster and Hattie Lawton were arrested. Timothy Webster was sentenced to death and executed on April 29, 1862. Hattie Lawton, known only as Mrs. Timothy Lewis, was sentenced to one year in Castle Thunder Prison in Richmond, Virginia, and later exchanged for Confederate spy Bill Boyd in December of 1862. Nothing is known about her post-war years or her death, so there's a job for you armchair historians who are good at sifting through old records. Kate Warren and Alan Pickerton teamed up to provide intelligence for McClellan's Ohio campaign while working out of Cincinnati. Kate easily infiltrated social gatherings and was successful in worming out secrets that men would find impossible to garner. She went by a large number of aliases and was often seen with Pinkerton, acting as his mistress. And very possibly, she was much more than that. She was known as Kitty by Alan's brother Robert, who sometimes argued with his brother in what he believed to be over-the-top expenses regarding the female agency. After the Civil War, between 1865 and her untimely death in 1868, Kate Warren worked on various high-profile cases. One of these involved the murder of a bank teller named George Gordon. The murderer got away with the huge sum of $130,000. Pinkerton suspected a man named Drysdale, and sent Kate undercover to become close with Drysdale's wife. She was able to uncover the location of the money and pin Drysdale as the murderer. Other similar cases followed, and in Pinkerton's memoirs, he called Kate Warren the most successful agent he'd ever worked with, saying, She never let me down. Kate Warren's career was cut short by illness. She died in 1868 at the age of 35 and was buried in the Pinkerton family plot in Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. 
She left no family of her own, and it was never determined if Kate Warren was her real name. But one thing is for sure. Alan Pinkerton thought enough of her to have her buried in his family cemetery. Her story should be a series on Netflix, so get busy, scriptwriters, now that you're back to work. Next, The Ghosts of Antietam and Bloody Lane. We'll share portions of two articles, the first being Ghosts of Antietam's Battlefield and the Bloody Lane by Ricky Longfellow, and that was for the Federal Highway Administration's Back in Time online article. The bloodiest battle of the Civil War took place on September 17, 1862, on Antietam Creek near the small town of Sharpsburg, Maryland. Four hours of intense fighting took place on an old sunken road that separated two farms. A staggering 23,100 men were wounded, killed, or missing in action after the Union and Confederate armies collided in the nearby cornfields, farmlands, and Antietam Creek. When the Confederate army reached the sunken road, which provided some protection at first, General Robert E. Lee ordered that the battle be held there. Soldiers on both sides fired continuously as the Federals tried repeatedly to overtake the position. Finally, the Confederate soldiers were overrun and bodies fell on top of bodies in the bloodied sunken road. Today we know it is Bloody Lane, and if you ever have occasion to walk it, you will indeed go back in time and be humbled by the experience. The tragic impressions of that day seem to linger. It seems that no matter how many visitors roam the old road on any given day, it remains church-like quiet. According to eyewitnesses, Bloody Lane is haunted. Gunfire and the smell of gunpowder have been reported when no one is on the road or even nearby. One visitor to the battlefield saw several men in Confederate uniforms walking Bloody Lane. He thought they were reenactors, until they vanished. The most convincing of the reports is the one of some Baltimore schoolboys who walked Bloody Lane and heard singing out in the fields. They said it sounded like a chant, or the Christmas song Deck the Halls. They heard a chant similar to Fa-la-la-la-la sound repeatedly. The area was near the observation tower where the Irish brigade charged the Confederates with a battle cry in Gaelic, which sounded like that Christmas carol. Another haunted area is Burnside's Bridge, known then as Roarback Bridge, where General Ambrose Burnside pushed the Confederates back after many defeated attempts. Many soldiers were buried quickly in and around the bridge in unmarked graves. Visitors at night have reported seeing balls of blue light moving around supported by the sound of a drum playing cadence as it fades into the night. Perhaps the Battle of Antietam is not over for some restless spirits. The Pry House and the Piper House stand on the battlefield. Both are reported to be haunted. Stories ranging from footsteps heard on the stairs to apparitions of a woman thought to be the wife of one of the generals who died in that house. The St. Paul Episcopal Church in Sharpsburg was used as a Confederate hospital after the battle. Reports tell of the screams of injured and dying still coming from the building. Others report seeing flickering lights from the church's tower. The wounded were taken into nearby Sharpsburg to the church and into people's homes to be cared for, and many of them died there after surviving the horrendous battle. There is a house west of the town of Mount Airy where some of the wounded were taken. Legend has it that the house are still stained with blood and cannot be removed even with sanding. An unnamed staff writer penned the article Antietam Battlefield is Full of Ghosts 
for the Akron Beacon Journal. Sharpsburg, Maryland. Antietam Battlefield is full of ghosts. It is difficult not to see ghosts at Bloody Lane, the cornfield, or a stone bridge over Antietam Creek. Those are perhaps the three most hallowed spots at Antietam National Battlefield in western Maryland. Here the Confederate Army under General Robert E. Lee battled the Union Army under General George McClellan on September 17, 1862, in what became the bloodiest one-day battle in the Civil War and the bloodiest day in U.S. history. Said Union General Joseph Hooker, It was never my fortune to witness a more bloody, dismal battlefield. He later added that Antietam was fought with great violence on both sides. The carnage has been awful. There was a casualty every two seconds on average, for twelve hours. A three-mile line of bodies waited to be buried at its conclusion. In all, more than 23,000 men were killed or wounded on both sides. About 12,410 Northerners and 10,700 Southerners. Antietam was a three-part battle. The Union troops made three piecemeal attacks on the Confederate line in the morning. The Confederates were driven back, but the line did not break. The fighting was especially fierce in the cornfield, and Union casualties were high in the West Woods. In the afternoon, two Union divisions broke the Confederate line closer to Sharpsburg at Bloody Lane after horrific fighting, but McClellan failed to follow up, and the advantage was lost. A Union flanking effort was slowed by 500 Georgians at Lower or Burnside Bridge. Reinforcements arrived at the last minute to thwart the final Union attack and push back General Ambrose Burnside's Union troops. The unsung hero was Confederate General A.P. Hill, whose 3,500 men marched 20 miles from Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and arrived in time to save the Confederate Army. The battle ended in exhaustion. Lee began withdrawing to the south the next day. Neither side gained a decisive victory. The battle allowed President Abraham Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863, freeing the slaves still held in the South. In the North, the battle is known as Antietam, after the stream. In the South, it's known as Sharpsburg, the nearest town. Antietam was called Artillery Hell by some, with more than 500 cannons, 293 in the Union and 246 with the Confederates. They fired 50,000 rounds of ammunition, an average of 70 rounds per minute, during the day-long battle. A total of 4,776 Union soldiers are buried in the 11-acre Antietam National Cemetery. The dead were initially buried where they fell, but were later reinterred. Confederate soldiers were buried separately in Hagerstown and Frederick, Maryland, and in Shepherdstown, Virginia, now West Virginia. The battlefield became part of the National Park Service in 1933. At Bloody Lane, one Pennsylvania soldier said the air near the sunken road was full of whizzing, singing, buzzing bullets. Another soldier wrote of a savage continual thunder that cannot compare to any sound I've ever heard since. The Union approach was 700 yards wide, and many troops were in combat for the first time. The Confederates had a strong defensive position in and around the sunken road. Union reinforcements arrived, including the Irish Brigade from the 69th New York Infantry, which lost 62% of its men in the attack. The outmanned Confederates finally gave way. The sunken road was filled with dead and wounded Confederates. 
The farm fields leading toward it were littered with fallen Union troops. Visitors to the Antietam battlefield should make their first stop at the visitor center off Maryland 65 north of Sharpsburg. You can view a film and get an orientation to the 12-square-mile battlefield with more than 100 monuments, walls, stone bridges, and old farms. Antietam offers an 8.5-mile self-driving tour that hits all the highlights. The whitewashed Dunker Church, West Woods, the Cornfield, East Woods, Lower Bridge, and the final attack. The National Park Service developed a new network of interpretive foot trails that wind 12 miles through the battlefield. Most are short, up to 1.7 miles, with small guidebooks to point out attractions along the routes. It is a way to get visitors out of their vehicles to appreciate up close what happened in 1862. Private tours of the battlefield can be arranged. There's a standard tour that lasts three hours, and customized tours are available as well. For more information, visit the Antietam Battlefield Guides website. The bugle call you've just heard is known as taps. Here's the story. Brigadier General David Butterfield of Utica, New York, was commanding the 3rd Brigade of Morrell's Division, 5th Corps, at the Battle of Gaines Mill near Richmond, Virginia, on June 26, 1862, when his men began to fall back. Despite being wounded, Butterfield grabbed the colors and rallied his troops. He was able to do this in the din of battle, only because he had composed several bugle calls to signal orders to his unit commanders. This gained enough time for General George McClellan's Army of the Potomac to safely withdraw to Harrison's Landing. For his bravery on the battlefield that day, Butterfield was awarded the Medal of Honor. At Harrison's Landing, the Union troops' morale was very low, as the men were suffering from mosquitoes, heat, typhoid, and dysentery. Amid all this misery... On July 2, 1862, Butterfield introduced another version of an existing bugle call, which was then called the Tattoo, which called for lights out, which meant stop carousing and go to sleep. Butterfield did not like the Tattoo. He had an idea in his head, but he couldn't read or write music, so he called for the bugler and simply whistled the tune to him. He ordered the bugler to play this new tune in place of the old Tattoo. Taps became a part of American military tradition and is still played today at nightfall at military posts and at funerals. And I can't think of a better way to end this collection of Civil War stories than Taps. Rest in peace, all who fought and died in that terrible war, and pray that it never happens again here. 
Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I've mentioned recently that our Spotify listeners have an opportunity with each episode to leave us with comments, and I wanted to share a few before we wrap up today. This one was for the Ballad of Mo Berg. This one from Japer83. Great episode. Keep up the good work. Only a handful of podcasts I think are amazing, and yours is one of them. And this one. A great story that had to be true. I love history, especially when it messes with the traditional American persona. That one from Ripcon. Thank you both for your comments. That one on the Ballad of Moberg. Those on the Ballad of Moberg. And now on the Battle of Britain, Part 1. Great captivating stories heard directly from pilots. That one from Tom Butaccio. Thank you, Tom. And this one. Such great podcast. I really enjoyed the veteran interviews. Appreciated the details in an engaging and interesting manner. Keep up the good work. I listen to the 1001 genres whenever I can. That one from Becky. And this one from OB7. It is absolutely the B.O.B. The B.O.B. is a modern-day Thermopylae. How were we ever liberating the continent without the Isles to stage from? Stalingrad wouldn't have mattered without the B.O.B., meaning the Battle of Britain. And this one was for American Spring, the interview. Wonderful. Been listening for almost a year, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Keep up the great work. That one from Becky. Thank you, Becky. And this one. This was for The Legend of Black Bart. Shout out from South Africa. Love all your stories. About to start listening to 1001 Best of Jack London. So thrilled to find that one. That one from Dix. Thank you very much, Spotify listeners, for leaving your comments. We appreciate it greatly, and we'll share more in the future. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, send us a review.